Hello and welcome to The Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians, made possible by Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. Welcome everyone, I'm Brendan Telfer this Thursday morning. A little bit twist about there, but at least uh, a little bit of sunshine earlier on. Well, this week on the program, new Australian research which shows an incontrovertible link between high blood pressure and cardio events. Within the Australian guidelines, our targets are currently low 120 over 90. The message is, know your numbers. Also this week on The Age Stage, the rise in retirees with mortgage debt. The number of Australian homeowners over the age of 65 still carrying mortgage debt has trebled since 2002. People are going to find themselves just unable to pay off their mortgage debt and having to sell up and move into the rental sector in older age. We speak with Professor Rachel Long from Curtin University. Producer Cheryl Brody has a special report on grief and tinnitus, the sound you hear when you're listening to silence. Tinnitus is something that people sort of, it, it occurs to them at uh, times, uh, and then they wonder, well, is this really normal, you know, that you can hear some sort of sound in the ear that's not necessarily a sound that's around them, but uh, that they're getting, uh, people often describe a hissing or a buzzing or a ringing sound, and, um, and even a pulsing sound. Um, and so it can be many and varied, and, and in fact, the, the causes can also be many and varied. You're on RPPFM, and this is The Age Stage. And first up this week, Australian research, which shows that if you have high blood pressure, you are risking stroke or cardiovascular events. Research fellow Dr Emily Atkins is on the line from George Institute, Global Health Sydney, part of the University of New South Wales. Good morning, Emily. Welcome to The Age Stage. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be joining you today. Blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. It's a pretty interesting correlation. You've been doing a little bit of work. Basically, what have you found? Uh, so we've got um, good evidence that aiming for a lower blood pressure target when you start treatment reduces cardiovascular events such as heart attack and stroke. So basically, how aware should we be of this correlation? It would probably make sense in the first instance anyway that you'd probably try and keep your blood pressure down, would you not? Absolutely, that's it. And this is just sort of reinforcing that it's, it's worth pursuing those lower targets. So how low is the optimum? Um, so we've seen... Uh, well, within the Australian guidelines, our targets are currently uh, below... 120 over 90 for um, for people who are at high cardiovascular risk. So um, those are people who would have um, existing cardiovascular disease or a family history or diabetes or uh, atrial fibrillation. Um, for older people, so people aged over 75 um, and for people with kidney disease. So basically, uh, when we're told by our local GP to know our numbers, um, this is when these numbers should uh, really be working for us. Absolutely, that's right. So it's important to um, keep an eye on your blood pressure and have an ongoing dialogue with your GP about what your numbers are and how you're uh, treating your high blood pressure. So ordinarily, of course, uh, we have blood pressure-lowering tablets and, and chemicals which we can take on a, what, daily basis? Yes, that's right. So um, while we would often start with lifestyle changes, many people do need medications to help 
lower their blood pressure and, and keep it towards that target. So I guess the GP is also, as you say, going to tell us, uh, take some weight off, do some exercise, eat healthily and probably lots of good fluids as well rather than alcohol. Absolutely. So it would also be yeah, reducing alcohol consumption and uh, quit smoking if you're still a smoker. Yes, that's probably a bit of a no-brainer as well, I would suggest, Emily. Um, and then just know your numbers and uh, constantly get in touch with your doctor or pretty regularly get in touch with your doctor and just make sure that those numbers are working for you. What is it saying about us Australians, maybe those of us in the West, that we are having to take chemicals to reduce blood pressure these days? Well, I think it's just that our our bodies aren't able to keep up with our lifestyle changes. So as as humans have evolved and we've um, made changes and moved into cities and we're less active and we eat more processed foods, our bodies are trying to adapt to those lifestyles, but uh, we're doing that in a way where it's going to increase our risk of a heart attack or stroke. So what is it also saying about our lifestyle? Maybe if we do have uh, high blood pressure, maybe we should think about, what, an early retirement and maybe uh, get down here to the Mornington Peninsula and enjoy enjoy the scenery a bit more. Oh, that sounds lovely. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so um, there's, I guess, things we need to do before we develop high blood pressure in the first place. So um, as we were discussing, um, keeping an eye on our body weight, exercising more, eating plenty of fresh fruit and veggies um, but uh, after a point you're um, probably going to need some help with uh, blood pressure lowering medicines. Okay is this a sort of a, a terminal diagnosis then I mean if we have blood high blood pressure can we by natural means bring it down to acceptable levels? Uh, for some people uh, cutting out salt from their diet and um, increasing their exercise and giving up smoking and alcohol is enough but for most of the population once they've reached that point where they do have high blood pressure they do need help from medicines. And that is basically it for life then they're going to be on some sort of uh, blood pressure lowering tablets for the rest of their days. Yeah that's right. Wow that says uh, quite a lot about our lifestyle and the and the condition that we find ourselves in these days Emily. Yes so um, it's, uh, I guess, an unfortunate consequence of um, eating a lot of processed foods, but also because we are living much longer than we used to, um, we're, I guess, living long enough to develop high blood pressure in the first place. And, and what about your research? Is it saying anything about uh, blood thinners as well? Should we be taking that aspirin a day or half aspirin a day? outside of my research i'm unable to comment on that sorry okay don't want to take you anywhere where you're not qualified emily definitely don't want to compromise you so basically then it's a common sense approach try and get some weight off get some exercise talk to the doctor and know your numbers absolutely know your numbers that's the key message here research fellow dr emily atkins from the george institute global health in sydney you're tuned to rwpfm the age stage this thursday morning when we come back retirees and mortgage debt older australians owing on their homes at the end of their working lives hi this is megan gale and when i'm on the peninsula i love listening to rwp and this is the age stage on rwpfm your local radio station here broadcasting live from the bendigo bank studio in beautiful downtown mornington great to have you company today brendan Toffer in the studio with you today and some rather interesting information coming out of um, Curtin University in Western Australia this week that a number of Australian homeowners over the age of 65 are carrying mortgage debt into their retirement. 
Well, it seems to me that it's got some serious implications, especially the way that they um, work out their retirement plans and where they want to get to over the next few years. Professor of Economics at Curtin University is Rachel Ong, and Rachel's on the line to join us. Professor Ong, are these worrying trends? Should we be concerned? Well, Brendan, I think they are indeed very worrying trends. So if you look back at statistics uh, from the Australian Bureau of Statistics going back to the early 1990s, and you track Australian homeowners forward in time, you'll see that a significant proportion, uh, a growing share, really, of older Australian homeowners are carrying mortgage debt into retirement. And this includes, obviously, those who are aged 65 and over. But the reason why it's so worrying is that um, if you look at those who are about to enter into retirement in the next few years, like, for instance, those in their 50s, um, you'll see that a growing share of these pre-retirees are also carrying mortgage debt. And so you'd expect this trend to continue over time. So what is causing this problem? Is it inflated house prices? Is it lifestyle expectation? Is it the now generation? What's going on? Well, I think there are a few factors at play here. Um, If you look at those who are in their late 40s, early 50s, and even those who are now in their early to mid-60s, they form part of the baby boomer generation. And um, this particular generation has had the benefit of um, experiencing a a very, very strong housing market boom in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And so many of them have entered their middle age um, stage of their life course, having quite a high asset value in the form of property assets. And so um, many of them are actually more prepared to take out mortgage debt with um, high family home values. That's that's one. And we've also seen the introduction of um, new mortgage products, such as flexible home loans, reverse mortgages, really products that allow people to draw down on their housing equity in a relatively cheap manner uh, without having to sell up their home. Um, So that also has increased the propensity for older Australians to take out uh, greater uh, mortgage debt. Um, Instead of paying them down, some of them are getting more indebted over time. So, So what is their thinking then? Are they thinking about maybe using their superannuation to pay out debt on retirement? Or is superannuation another factor that they're not considering at this stage? How does that all fit in? Um, 
over longer periods of their life. So it may be that some Australians are prepared to work longer, um, maybe into their 70s, um, perhaps even into their 80s. And so that factor may be at play as well. So we're seeing these people then enter this period of their life, they're, they're sort of real estate heavy, cash poor then. And so what then happens if there is, you know, this, if you read the Fairfax media over here on the eastern side of Australia about this inevitable correction, everybody's madly into their real estate and all of a sudden we see a massive correction over the next 10 years. Where, where does that leave these superannuation and or retirement plans for these people? then obviously it would tip quite a lot of these people over the edge. Um, and in fact, the housing markets are becoming more volatile and so are labour markets as well. Um, and so it does mean that more and more Australian homeowners are, are, are sitting close to the margins of homeownership. And what I mean by that is many of them are, are in insecure jobs where they're carrying high mortgage debt. And so it doesn't take very much to tip them over the edge. A massive um, house price correction would do, uh, would be one. Um, the loss of jobs, um, you know, uh, health uh health shocks if, if you fall ill and, and you're unable to continue working, that may tip people over the edge as well. In fact, previous research that I've done have actually shown that um, mortgage stress is a key factor in um, causing people to lose home ownership in later lives, um, as is marital breakdown as well. So obviously there are more and more people who are sitting closer to the edge with high mortgage debts and insecure jobs. And if if they do experience a life shock in later life, then they're likely to tip over into the rental sector. And it'd be very difficult for them to rebound back into um, home ownership after that. Some of them might actually help uh, to pay off the mortgage debt through drawing down on their superannuation, but then that leaves them with nothing much left in terms of super savings when they retire. We're speaking to Rachel Long, who's Professor of Economics at Curtin University on the age stage. Well, these are rather gloomy sort of prospects for a number of people. Is it is it a common practice amongst this particular retiree age group or approaching retiree age group, Rachel, what you've seen so far? home ownership in, in Asia life are, are growing. Um, we are seeing more and more people tipping out of home ownership into the private rental sector and not being able to get back into uh, the home ownership sector. It's still debatable whether or not they're actually drawing down on their superannuation to pay off their mortgage debt um, should they find themselves in a position whereby they're about to lose home ownership. But that is a um, obviously um, a very logical um, move for older Australians if they find themselves about to lose their home, um, it would be very logical for them, a very rational decision for them to, to just delve into their superannuation to pay off their mortgage debt and actually retain their home rather than be forced to sell up and move into the rental sector. But the superannuation system hasn't actually matured. It, it was only introduced in the early 1990s, so there are many older Australians who don't actually have much in their superannuation account as well. So I think apart from the danger of people draining their superannuation funds to pay off their mortgage debt, um, the other danger, which is equally great, if not greater, is that people are going to find themselves just unable to pay off their mortgage debt and having to sell up and move into the rental sector in, in, in older age. And it can be quite difficult to compete for housing in the private rental market when you are older, um, particularly if you're not working full-time. 
Um, so it can be a very, a very dreary uh, situation for wow. people if they lose home ownership in later life. Well, and it's also, of course, a lot of uh, a lot of the plans are obviously based on a lot of assumptions about where property is going to be and uh, what people can do in terms of capitalising um, their their homes, I suppose, and putting them out on the market and expecting returns at. at uh, you know, record levels that we've had over the last decade or so. So a lot of big assumptions being made by a number of people then, obviously. That's right. If you even look at these flexible home loan products and reverse mortgages, they're all based on the assumption that house prices will just keep rising over time. And that's not necessarily going to be the case. If you look at where government policies are heading, um, the, the family home is increasingly being taken into account in determining eligibility for aged care subsidies. Um, and the Productivity Commission has in recent years put out recommendations um, encouraging older homeowners to draw down on their housing equity to fund their aged care needs in retirement. And all this is it's an understandable move because there are fiscal pressures, budget pressures associated with population aging. Um, so it's logical for the government to in, in, increasingly encourage older homeowners who are asset rich but cash poor to actually draw down on their family home assets to pay for their own aged care needs. But again, all these policies are predicated on the assumption that house prices will just keep increasing over time. And so um, by building more and more policies and programs around this assumption, we're actually exposing older homeowners to a lot of, um, to a higher degree of house price risk, because if house prices were to plummet, um, then they'd find themselves um, with very low equity or even in negative equity in old age. I think um, some of the implications of my research are that we're going to have to look very carefully, or governments are going to have to look very carefully at um, the design of policies that actually rely on the assumption that people house prices will just keep increasing over time and that they're going to have a lot to draw down on from their family home in retirement. That's, that's not necessarily a tenable assumption. It's not necessarily one that's sustainable um, and it comes with its risks. It's what I call a shift towards housing asset-based welfare where you, you're encouraging people to rely more and more on their housing assets for their welfare needs in retirement. So governments are going to have to look very careful, very carefully at the risks of those sort of policies. The other major policy implication, I think, of my research is that I think governments are going to have to look very carefully at the private rental sector in Australia. We have quite a large private rental sector, so about 25% of the housing stock is in the private rental market. Um, but it's, it's a very lightly regulated sector and many people face issues around tenancy insecurity. Um, they get into short-term leases and many of them find themselves having to move around quite a bit. Um, and I think this will be a particularly serious matter for older renters. And so I think there are all sorts of um, implications there. It's all sorts of good reasons why we need to take another look at the private rental sector and whether or not they're actually catering for the ten housing tenure needs of older people who are finding themselves having to rent in old age. Wow. Professor Rachel Ong of Curtin University, thank you very much indeed for your time today, Rachel. Appreciate it very much indeed. Thanks, Brendan, for having me on the program. This is The Age Stage, and when we come back, producer Cheryl Brody has a special report on grief. Hi, this is Sigrid Thornton speaking. I love listening to the radio, and when I'm on the peninsula, I love listening to RPP FM. 
Good morning, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Age Stage program here at RPPFM. I hope that you are having an excellent morning so far. My name is Cheryl Brody, and today I am speaking with Tiora about the subject of grief and loss. Tiora is a senior clinician in mental health, social work, and she is also a family therapist. Welcome to the program, Tiora. Hi, thank you for having me, Cheryl. Hi, listeners. Thank you. Pleasure. Could you tell me a little bit, Tiora, about grief and loss? Oh, grief is how a person experiences and responds to loss, and it varies from person to person. And as anyone may be feeling um, the loss, like those kind of feelings may come and go with the intensity and the pain. And right after a loss, a person may feel shocked and numb or in disbelief that the loss has occurred. Okay, um, could you tell me a little bit about your experience on the subject? Sure. Um, having worked over 25 years in hospitals, in acute hospitals, I've, I've seen a lot of grief and loss and also worked intensely with families and the person themselves who've experienced the grief. And also I coordinated the emotional um, and psychosocial support services in the community palliative care organisation back in 2016 and 2017. And I'm embarking on a PhD on this subject itself. So, Tiora, who would be a good person to reach out to if one of our listeners is presently suffering from grief or loss? That's a good question. Um, I think how, like, it's important to balance hope with the despair of the grief. And so, how do we cope? And who, who do you share your feelings with? And I encourage people to share their feelings all the time. Talk to you. Um, Talk about the loss and the sadness with others around you, friends, family. And the time that you do reach out, say, to a GP or to a professional is when after six months or more, you're still grieving and you no longer, you don't long, you no longer have that hope or that um, you're not able to balance that despair with the hope or the inner peace or the comfort that comes with eventually in time that does when someone is grieving normally. Excellent. And um, that was part of the final question, but when should people see professional advice? When they are under um, a distress, um, for example, you seek help when grief becomes too hard and complex and when a spiritual crisis occurs. This is when a person is unable to find any source of meaning in their life or any hope or inner, inner peace or strength. And this distress can have really detrimental effects on physical and mental health. Medical illness, for example, and impending death can often trigger spiritual distress in not only the person experiencing it, but the family as well. But, but really, I, I, I must stress that that is um, not on, on the normal side. Lots of people experience grief and feel that distress, but it's normal. And it's normal to experience grief and to grieve in your own way. But when it becomes too hard, is after so many prolonged months and possibly years when you don't see the light and you do need to then reach out and go to your GP and talk about it. And there are a plethora of services that can help. And these services are, are government-based and are also um, community-based. Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement is one of them. Compassionate Friends Victoria. A Lifeline is really great. Um, local community and health centres, hospitals and palliative care services be able to direct you as well 
we live in a, a wonderful community that once we reach out, we can actually help one another. Right. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much again for your time, Tiora. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You're tuned to RPPFM. This is The Age Stage, our weekly program that looks at issues and concerns of older Australians. When we come back, Peter Bartlett on tinnitus. The noise you hear when you're listening to silence. What is it? How is it diagnosed? And what are its cures? Tinnitus after this break. And this is The Age Stage on RPPFM, sponsored by Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. Great to have your company this Thursday morning. Brendan Telfer with you today. Of course, a program that uh, we're designed to look at issues and matters concerning older Australians. And when you are talking about older Australians, invariably the issue of hearing comes up. And one condition in particular is getting a little bit of traction at the moment, tinnitus. A noise you hear when you're listening to silence is one definition I've heard. A perplexing condition, of course, affects about one in ten Australians and particularly those of us a little bit older. So time then to bring in the asset. Peter Bartlett is a clinical audiologist with 25 years' experience in the industry, six years in Africa and also in Outback Australia as well. Peter is part of Audica, a hearing health network that spans the country and provides a full range of hearing services. And that, of course, says that perhaps we should start there with Peter's expertise, bring him into the program today. And uh, welcome back to us, Peter. Good to have you there on the other end of the phone. And thanks for raising this issue because tinnitus is something that people sort of, it occurs to them at uh, times uh, and then they wonder, well, is this really normal is that you can hear some sort of sound in the ear that's not necessarily a sound that's around them, but uh, that they're getting, uh, people often describe a hissing or a buzzing or a ringing sound and, um, and even a pulsing sound. Um, and so it can be many and varied and, and in fact, the, the causes can also be many and varied. Well, that is very, very interesting. So what is tinnitus? As you say, it's the sound, it's the consequence of what? A a problem with hearing? It's caused as we get older? It's part of the ageing process? It's damage that we've done to our hearing in our younger years? What is it? Yeah, look, all of that's um, quite relevant. And uh, it's often associated with hearing loss. And this is uh, something that is actually very... Um, pertinent to maybe um, how we look about treating or managing the tinnitus. Uh, It is often uh, damage done to the ear. Uh, But if you think about what hearing is, hearing is really just a nerve uh, firing or a nerve impulse that's going from the cochlea, the organ of hearing, in our ear to the brain. And so if there's anything else that is going to make the the auditory nerve to fire um, or any other input or any other stimulus, then theoretically you're hearing a sound that's actually not there and so what we have to look at is well why is that happening and so for some people it might be dental or jaw or head or neck issues for others it might be even wax in the ear canal or some middle ear infection Uh, even diet can have an impact so high salt diet caffeine can uh, trigger tinnitus um, and there can be other trauma and and quite interestingly um, a lot of these things you can consider as being uh, if you were, if I were just to use one word, it would be the word stress, uh, and it may be a physical stress, and some of those things I've talked about, but also emotional, mental stress uh, can have uh, an impact on uh, a person getting that noise in the ear, and uh, in fact, that can be just maybe a, a sign that something else isn't quite right. So, are we going to be treating this? Do we have um, some breakthroughs in terms of research, and what is the prognosis for those with it, with tinnitus? Well, yeah, 
and there's always a lot of research going into it. And what we're really looking at saying, well, what are these uh, cells that are that are firing? What are these nerve cells? Are they actually in the ear, further in the brain? And there are there is some um, current research looking at uh, the the location of these cells and and how could we influence those to get a different outcome without going into things at a cellular level though when you consider that about 80 percent of people with tinnitus may also have some sort of degree of uh, hearing loss um, one of the things that we can do in fact the most effective thing we can do is to treat hearing loss uh, and so for those people that do have hearing loss and tinnitus uh, a great majority of those who are then fitted with hearing devices uh, lo and behold, notice that they don't get that tinnitus anymore because we've actually caused a change in uh, the auditory pathway, the neural firing in the auditory pathway. So, um, you know, you can kill two birds with one stone sometimes and people don't realise that. And, you know, having a hearing check is probably the best way to start looking at um, the issue of tinnitus. Well, I definitely know that you in the past, of course, have brought our attention to the fact that many of us do ignore our hearing. It's uh, affecting one in four of us at the moment and probably going to get worse as well. Uh, I'm just thinking, though, very quickly about, I mean, we have noise-cancelling headphones. Mm. Uh, do we, can we expect that we might have a noise-cancelling tinnitus solution one day? Yeah, look, that's a really great, um, great kick up there because if you think about um, how a noise cancelling headphone might work, it's actually uh, it's actually hearing the sound that is around it and, and therefore responding to it and, as you say, cancelling or providing a reverse signal so that it, it effectively becomes null and it doesn't go to the, to the wearer, the listener. Um, and if you think about with tinnitus as well, and one of, the, one of the strategies, even if you're not fitted with hearing aids, is to create and have an environment where you've got some other noise that's coming into the ear to mask or distract or to overwhelm or overpower. So that's why people often say, you know, late at night when it's quiet, um, they're more they're more able to notice that tinnitus because there's no other thing, uh, there's no other signal or noise masking uh, that tinnitus sound. And so one of the things we talk about with people is, well, okay, how do we create um, little ways of managing it or changing it uh, so that uh, and and sometimes people have difficulty getting to sleep at night. Maybe we put the the radio on at a very very low level or even slightly off channel so that it's a little bit of a, a buzzing hissing noise rather than uh, having to listen to. Uh, the thing that's inside their head, and that uh, it actually can be quite comforting. And the other thing to say is that the more that people worry and think about it, the worse tinnitus gets. So <laughs> we won't talk about it for too long, um, but certainly for anyone that's got concerns, the best place to start is to see an audiologist. And, of course, um, uh, we're happy at Audica to be able to provide people with counselling and information. There are actually a couple of really good websites as well to give some good information about tinnitus. Well, we'll get on to that in just a moment, Peter, but before we do, what about the state of current research as far as tinnitus is concerned? Are we going to get a breakthrough? Could, could we expect a breakthrough in the not-too-distant future? I think all the experts would say that because it is such a, a multi-level or a multifactorial issue, then it, you may get a breakthrough for, for certain people with certain methods, and that's not necessarily going to provide um, a cover-all for all situations of tinnitus, and that's a, as a direct result of the cause. So I think there's we're always finding out more and more about it, uh, and often uh, things even like tinnitus maskers um, uh, are, are useful. Um, but, yeah, we really need to look at the cause, and sometimes it can be treated 
straight away. So if the cause is a, of a physical nature of the ear or uh, the head or neck, uh, treat the, the source issue and then the tinnitus goes away. Okay, so therefore we probably should get along to Audica and see what you can do for us as well. And I would suggest that there are probably a couple of options for us down here in the Greater Mornington Peninsula where you guys uh, could give us your specialist knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So we do have uh, a couple of clinics in Mornington. Uh, there's uh, Rosebud. Um, out to Berwick. Um, so there's a number of different uh, uh, clinics that are available and I think probably just the, uh, ring the 1-800 number to make a, a uh, an appointment at the closest clinic is the best way to go or in fact to have a look at the uh, Audica website which is um, www.audica.com.au um, That uh, number is 1-800-317-914 and um, you can uh, make an appointment either way and yeah, we'll always make sure that we check everything out in terms of the hearing assessment, looking in the ears, and then also considering who we might need to refer to for other special um, specialist advice, such as an ear, nose and throat uh, specialist um, or somebody else. But the upshot is that uh, you guys can recommend um, some sort of short-term remedies at least, and perhaps if it is a hearing loss problem, uh, you might be able to address uh, substantively what uh, the person is particularly hearing in terms of the tinnitus. Absolutely. And one of the questions I like to ask is, you know, because we're trying to make it better, but I also ask, is there anything that makes the tinnitus better or worse? And in fact, sometimes if we can focus on, uh, actually, what is, you know, whenever the times where I'm noticing it more or it is a problem and, and we can sort of switch that around and find um, some creative solutions um, to, to address the issue. Peter, you are part of Audica, of course, and it's a hearing health network that spans the country. Now, in the past, again, uh, you have underlined the fact that we do tend uh, to ignore hearing as um, part of sort of daily, or we should be taking it more seriously, at least, than perhaps we do. Yeah, well, the irony of the tinnitus is, of course, that you're hearing something that's not there, and then um, with hearing loss, you're not hearing something that is there. And so uh, often that's uh, the case with um people with hearing loss, particularly where it's um, gradually declining, um, that you're really not aware of the things that you're missing out on. And it's really a loved one, friends and family that uh, can often pick up on that and, and say that that's uh, becoming an issue. And um, you know, we know communication is a, a two-way street and it requires the people to speak and um, communicate clearly. But at the same time, there's someone saying, oh, you know, everyone's mumbling. Well, everyone can't be mumbling because uh, others are hearing um, people. So, yeah, it, it is a, a really good opportunity when you, you're thinking about that to, to have a quick check of the hearing. And it's a, it's a major health issue. It relates to so many different other aspects, such as mental health, uh, isolation, community connection. Um, so it's not just about our ears. It really is about um, being part of um, the community and society. Peter Bartlett, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Brennan. Peter Bartlett of Audica wrapping up this edition of the Age Stage. Many thanks to our sponsors, Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity for making the Age Stage possible. Also special thanks, of course, to our guests, Dr Emily Atkins from the George Institute in Sydney, Professor Rachel Ong, Curtin University of Perth, and Peter Bartlett of Audica. Plus, of course, our producer this week, Cheryl Brody. Thank you very much indeed. That's it for this week's edition of the Age Stage. Thank you very much indeed for your company. I'm Brendan Telfer. Thanks once again to our sponsors, Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. Have a safe and pleasant week. We'll see you in seven days.